0: Mr. Speaker, on the wall outside my office are the faces of 149 men and women from Washington State who were killed in action over the past 14 years in Afghanistan and Iraq. Today it's with reverence that I will add the 150th face, Sergeant Matthew McClinick. Matthew was killed in Helmand Province in Afghanistan on the 5th of January. Sergeant McClinic was a Green Beret, an engineer, a National Guardsman, as well as a dedicated friend, son, husband, and father. He joined the Army in 2006 and served in both Iraq and Afghanistan over the course of three tours. On one of his tours, his best friend was killed. So you can imagine what was in his mind when he's now leading a group in Afghanistan and one of his men is out on the ground, hit. He knew the danger, but he went out to try and save his teammate. He epitomized everything we admire about our warriors, their skill, their metal, their commitment to teammates, to their families, and to us as a nation. The loss of a promising, smart, steadfast young man whose devotion to family and country was freely given should not and will not be accepted without sorrow and respect. I had the chance to meet Matthew's wife, Alexandra, and their three-month-old son, Declan, on Friday when Matthew came back to Dover Air Force Base. Everything his family said about him, and speaks of a man I would like to have known. It is said that the true soldier fights not because he hates what's in front of him, but because he loves what's behind him. Matthew leaves behind a proud and beautiful family. His wife asks that she have a chance to go up to Walter Reed to see the man who her husband went out to save who's still alive. That's the kind of family this is. We as a nation should be forever grateful that someone of his caliber and his family continue to choose to fight.
1: Giving you the matter of facts. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host John Hendricks. Co-hosting with me for this week's podcast is Tim Kozak, the creator of the Veterans Project. Tim, what's up, bro?
2: What's up, man? Good to be here. How was your uh, How was your New Year's and Christmas? It was
1: good. It was good. Um, I took a little vacation, so that was that's always fun, you know. Um, kind of experiencing different culture and. You know, like some people go on vacation and they like stick to the resorts and stuff like that. Um, I'm not a, a believer in that, you know. I like to yeah. kinda get out there and mix it up. So it was cool, I had some interesting experiences, you know.
2: Living living dangerously. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you gotta get out there, man. I uh, I've done some of that Eastern Caribbean some of those Eastern Caribbean trips, man, and I feel really bad when I just it, it's it's really tough because like they'll take you past all these like little towns and stuff on the way to the resort like when you're riding on the bus i don't know if you've seen that but i always feel super guilty on the way there yeah. <laughs> because it's like it's you know the, the conditions are so bad man they're yeah, like third yeah. world and you're like driving past all this stuff and you're like i'm about to be eating like a buffet with like the best spot on the beach in the world and these yeah. people can like barely afford to eat <laughs>
1: yeah i'm, I'm sitting so at bad. a bar in the pool drinking <laughs> liquor
2: and like a mile away, there's there's uh some kid that can barely like that barely has clothes. It's crazy, man. It's the weirdest, yeah. it's the weirdest feeling. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's good, man. Glad you had a glad you had a uh, good little vacation, though. It's awesome.
1: Yeah, yeah. How was your holiday and uh, all that?
2: it was good, man. Uh, you know, got, got pretty much just, uh, stuff that I needed. Um, you know, of course didn't get the million dollars worth of camera gear that I wanted, but, um, you know, I'm hoping that (laughs) I'm hoping that maybe in the next, next five to 10 years I can like kind of, you know, collect all that. Uh, but you know, right now I'm just, uh, Just getting by with the bare necessities, man. Just doing what I love, and and I've got a lot of good gear too. But you know, there's always more stuff I want. Of course, it's like a photographer curse right there. Is uh, we always want to spend money. So,
1: what do you use, a Nikon or a Canon?
2: Yeah, I use a Nikon a D750, and it's uh, pretty much like top of the line for it's what most wedding photographers are using now. And I shoot a lot of weddings, so but I, I love it for all my portraiture needs. It it operates really well on in high ISO, so even when there's a lot of uh, when you know it, it's basically a light eating monster. So anytime like I'm in the dark or something, I don't really have to worry. And then I shoot this mainly with this thirty five millimeter Tamron that I've just gotten. It's a one and uh normally I'd want a one four just for the extended depth and but I but I like this lens because it's got uh VC in it, so which is uh which stops the vibration. So I can go down to like one twentieth of a second and still get no shake uh in my photos, which is pretty valuable for shooting uh like in motion. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I love it, man.
1: Yeah, it's cool. So for me and Tim had an interview with a uh, former Army Green Beret medic in 18 Delta by the name of Chris. And uh, Chris got out of the Army and now he's into contracting and he owns a company and, um, you know, they're doing some good work over there on the medical side. So basically for this episode, we we kind of had a focus on like uh, – tactical medicine, bleeding control, uh, that sort of thing. So it's kind of covers the medical side of the house. Uh, but as well as, uh, you know, just recently the one year anniversary of the passing of Matthew McClintock, uh, just passed. And Chris was a teammate of Matthew's and, um, you know, Matthew was killed last year in Afghanistan, conducting combat operations. So, you know, it's, uh, It's kind of crazy that, you know, there's been a lot of drawdowns, uh, truth withdrawals, and there hasn't been a lot of boots on the ground per se in Iraq and Afghanistan, but Americans are still dying and, you know, the fight is still real. So, um, you know, I I had a chance to talk with uh, McClintock's wife and, you know, they're, they're holding up pretty well and she's a strong woman, so it's it's. Good to see that there's some positivity but at the same time you know we still want to mourn and and, uh, pay our respects so I thought it'd be a good idea to get Chris on and we can kind of talk about Matthew a little bit so um so yeah so Tim you also aside from that you have a couple of things you got in the works for the next couple weeks can we talk about that?
2: Yeah man absolutely um you know first of all it was an honor to to talk to Chris kind of about that and and Matt and his life um because you know I was uh, I was really struck hard uh, within that last year uh, by by his death, uh, you know, really just you kind of even even being a veteran, you kind of lose track of things over there once you get out. So um, or you can and, and I try to keep up with it as much as I can. But, you know, we don't realize how good these special forces units really are, man, because these these guys are going over there in high tempo deployments, um, you know, in, in in Iraq even in the heat of things back when I was there you know or or before that in like 07 and uh some of these units you know weren't losing a single guy you know they might get a couple wounded or something like that but they're going on high tempo missions man hard stuff and and not you know not losing a guy is pretty amazing that doesn't yeah. mean that they're not going into dangerous places no they're effectively killing the enemy and uh and, and seeking destroying and killing the enemy and and they're doing it at such a high tempo um, it's amazing what they can really accomplish, uh, I- over there. So they're doing a killer job over there and, and it's sad to lose one, one of our own, but, um, man, you know, he, he, you know, what a way to live, uh, you know, taking out the worst of the worst. So I'm glad that, uh, he, I'm, I'm, I'm glad for his sacrifice. So, but anyways, um, got a lot coming up. Yeah. I'm going to be on a Tommy Lawrence show on Tuesday, um, it's going to be on the Blaze TV, which um, it's a paid-for network, but you know you can go on there for free trial. Uh, I'll also repost that from the Veterans Project page, the segment I do with her. But we're going to be talking about our event at Remind the Nation, um, which is going to be at Sundance um, January 23rd, and it's a private event. But we're going to have my uh, prints, and they're going to be 24 by 36s in metal. Um, it's, oh, they're going to, oh, they're so cool looking, man. Um, and I don't just say that cause they're mine. They're, yeah. they're really just, uh, the printing is beautiful. And so my studio does a great job. I'm going to have some of my veteran project prints, um, online and available in a silent auction format. And I will be posting, uh, the links to those, um, to those prints and my veterans will be as well. So if you're in touch with like any of those guys, like, Burt Coons or Tim Kennedy or Nate Boyers or Rudy Reyes. They're going to have those. They're going to be reposting those. And uh, we're going to try and get those auctioned off even before our night, the 23rd. So who knows? I'd love it if they go up on the wall and they're already sold. I mean, that would be awesome. But but we're going to have those. So 26 by 34s, and then we're going to have some 16 by 24s as well, which will probably sell for less, obviously, since they're smaller. But, you know, all the proceeds will go to the project, and we'll go to telling more veterans' stories. So it's just a good way to uh, be able to contribute. And where can people expect uh, to see this if they want to check it out? Yeah, so um, on the Veterans Project page, uh, we don't have links for the auction yet, but we will by, by the time this show comes out, um, we will have – Uh, these links available on the veterans project page on Facebook and, uh, on my Instagram, uh, the veterans project. So, so you'll see them there and, uh, yeah, it's just another, it's just a good way to get involved. Um, since, uh, you won't be able to be there at Sundance, um, it'll be a good way to, uh, just help support. Yeah. So just let me know when they go up and I'll, I'll give it a
1: repost so people can, um, you know, spread it out a little bit. Um. (laughs)
2: Yeah. I appreciate it, man. Um, well, I'm also, I'm excited about that night, man, because, you know, Tommy's going to be there. She's hosting the night, but I'm really excited about my, you know, my friends and, and some of my closest, uh, you know, um, community get to be there. Rudy's going to be there. Uh, Nate's going to be there. Kirstie Ines, Jacqueline Carso's, uh, uh, Miley Cardenas is going to be there and it's just going to be a great time for the project. And it's going to be a great time, uh, for, uh, for veterans,
1: yeah, definitely, you know, and it's, it's cool to see, you know, how things like an event like this is able to shape around the veterans, you know, a guy like yourself, um, like uh, Zulu Fox and Zoo Films Productions, those guys they they're doing great work. Um, you know, so it's it's just cool to see how kind of in 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 certain areas and certain aspects you know, when we're talking about the arts, when you're talking about uh, creativity, photography, video work, you know, veterans are making leaps and bounds, you know, it's, it's pretty awesome.
2: Yeah, I mean, let's be honest, you know, we're not, we're not like, uh, you don't think of Marines and like infantry guys in the Army, like being at the forefront of creativity, you know. But, yeah, right, with a um, paintbrush. Yeah, with the with a paintbrush or a or a camera, you know, like yeah, it's just it's kind of uh it's kind of funny. And my friends always joke with me. They're like, You've got like four different personalities, dude. Like you you frighten me a little bit. <laughs> but um you know it is man we're we're really making inroads and i think it's just a uh show you know it just shows that um we can really do anything we set our minds to we've we've had that effectiveness built in we've had that readiness built in to attack and destroy, crush whatever we've got to do and and whatever we wanna do. So those skills that are built in um, you know, that that we might have, we're really able, you know, to get out there when we think with positivity, we're able to get out there and truly be at the forefront of every industry that we wanna be at. Um and you know what's funny is um I was kinda having a talk with my friend about this earlier, but You know, some of these organizations that are helping me out, man, are civilian run. And, you know, we we need to be careful as veterans about the kind of inclusive behavior um, that we get into a little bit where we only let veterans kind of, you know, help us out. There's so many civilians, obviously 98 percent, you know, including yourself, John, um, you know look right now we're on a podcast you're a civilian right (laughs) i mean you you know so so there's so many you know my my buddy blake created both of my logos i mean guys are getting that logo tattooed on them now like you know it's 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 amazing he's a civilian never been a veteran but he loves veteran and he wants to help so what would happen john if i just shut him out and said you know what blake you're not a veteran you can't help me man like you know get get lost it's
1: it's like you you would be limiting uh you know your scope and and kind of in a way, your potential. Because, to be honest, you know, regardless of what either anybody does, you know, if you're successful at something, yeah, you are the one putting in the work and putting in the time and 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 that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, no one gets to the top of whatever they're trying to reach by themselves, you know. And if there are talented individuals who are motivated and driven and they're willing to be a part of what it is you're trying to do, then in, in my opinion, there's no reason why you shouldn't try and include people and, and grow together versus, you know, trying to do it on your own or just with veterans per se.
2: Yeah. And that's one thing you did a great job of, John was reaching out to me and saying, Hey man, we can, we can make something, you know, I've got something good here. You've got something good there, but let's come together and we can be more effective at this by helping each other. And, 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 and you know, obviously there's some things I'm not going to collaborate on. You know, I've had other photographers reach out to me and stuff, but you know, my vision is singular and the way I see things. So obviously, you know, I'm probably not, not going to bring another photographer on because yeah. why, the way I see things, the way I write it, I can't change the message, you know, and, and it will be changed if I bring another person in and, and that's not just selfish. That's not selfish. That's just the way I see things. Um, you know, it, it's, uh, it's the way, I, it's the way I want to do things. So, um, You know, but we can collaborate in certain ways and and help each other out and there needs to be community and we can't shut civilians out because, you know, look, 2% of us volunteered, you know, to go over there. So that means a whole 98% of other people out there and a lot of them probably like you that really just want to help veterans out and, and, you know, we can't be closed minded towards that. And, you know, we've, you know, with this Global Recon podcast, you know, we're able to do something uh, really great together. And not only that help each other help the community out as much as we can you know
1: right because look you know
2: a lot of guys will come on and they'll
1: have some people are like you know they they're coming on to kind of maybe share a story or or talk about one of their brothers or something like that and then some people have businesses and and all of that you know either if you're you're getting a story out about one of your brothers or you're trying to promote your business, you know, it's just another avenue for you to do that. So, um, you know, it, it's always a good thing and, and I'm glad that, you know, it's growing and that you're involved
2: and, you know, and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, and you've got some things you got, uh, you got some, uh, you're going to start working on those articles, aren't you here soon?
1: Yeah. You know, I got, I got some good writers, a bunch of uh, veteran writers, um,
2: government Oh, have you talked to Have you talked to Miley yet? By the way, have you Have you brought that up to her?
1: Yeah, yeah, we chatted before I left on vacation. But you know what I, I I got back from vacation and I got sick, so that kind of delayed, um, you know, like the the launch of some of that. Like I'm like my last day of vacation. I'm like, all right, when I get back, I'm gonna fucking crush it. I got this <laughs> articles coming out and yada yada, and then I get back and I get sick. So, uh, that dude, delayed. it's that so, um, weather.
2: It's yeah. that weather change, man. It's that weather change. That's what killed you right there, going from the beautiful Caribbean. Was it like super cold in New York when you got back?
1: Um, I think that when I got back, it was like forty, but the la- the next couple of days was just like
2: fr- freezing balls, man. So, <laughs> yeah, that's what got you, man.
1: Yeah. Well, so. I'm
2: looking forward to seeing those, man. I really am. I know that uh, that'll be huge. Uh, that'll be huge for you, and uh, huge for huge for Global Recon for sure.
1: Yeah man, I got some good stuff uh and I got some I got some good stuff that I've been working on and then I have some good stuff from some really talented uh veterans uh and and international too. So there's going to be stuff from veterans from allied nations as well. So it's not just going to be Americans, you know. It's it's going to be cool. Um,
2: I wish I wish we would do a little bit more of that in our community and and um I feel like we get a little close-minded sometimes with that and not, not a, you know, not against anybody that, that just stays on the American side, you know, that's fine. But I just wish we would expand a little more because I've got so many friends over there that, you know, especially in England that sacrifice so much, man. And, and in Australia too, and they come back to, you know, very kind of adverse situations, you know, where they don't get as much support as we do. Um, yeah. you know, my, my buddy Jack was in the Grenadier guards and he did like four tours of Homeland province, each one, seven, eight months lost a lot of friends man and and he would tell you like man you guys are lucky coming back to america because in england you know it's like our vietnam they don't give a crap man like you know don't care so um yeah i want to i want to reach out to those guys as much as possible and i'm glad you're doing that
1: yeah because you know a lot of a lot of those guys are making like you said making incredible sacrifices and and going through a lot and it's funny not funny but it's kind of a common uh, theme that I'm learning about as I've made some friends in the UK and Australia, like they'll have a, a similar uh, viewpoint where they feel like they're not that appreciated over there versus, uh, you know, I even uh, Chantel Taylor, who's been on the podcast a bunch of times and, and, you know, she, she said it like when she's in the States and she sees like, she, you know, they're driving through a neighborhood or whatever it is. She'll see like a bunch of American flags, hanging off of people's houses, like proudly, you know, and then she's like, and she, and she gets proud because of that, you know, she served with a lot of Americans and, and worked with a lot of uh, Americans overseas. But then she's like, when I get home, I don't see some of that, you know, and it, it's, it, I guess it kind of puts them off, but at the same time, you know, we're, we're making strides and, and, you know, trying to change the culture and, and things like that. So, uh, you know, it's all good stuff, man. It's all good stuff. So, um, all right, man. So with that being said, now I will play the conversation that me and Tim had with Chris, the former Army Green Special Forces medic. Hey, what's up, guys? We have a special guest who's back on the podcast for this week's episode. Co-hosting with me is Tim Kozak, the creator of the Veterans Project. Tim, what's up, brother? John, thanks for having me on, bro. Good to be with you again, man. All right. Thanks for coming on. So, our special guest for this week's podcast is Chris, and Chris is a former 18 Delta uh, Army Special Forces Green Beret medic. Chris was on the podcast previously, like early on, and uh, Chris, is good to have you back on. What's up, brother?
3: Hey, it's good to be back.
1: All right, so we got a couple of things to talk about. Um, I think, you know, first and foremost, yesterday was the one-year anniversary of the passing of uh, Matthew McClintock, Army Green Beret. He was killed in action in Afghanistan a, uh, just about a year ago. And when it happened, I remember learning about it. And we we had gotten his name, but obviously we didn't want to put anything out until the family was notified and until the DOD officially released the name, you know, so we kind of sat on it. But, you know, it turns out, Chris, that you were actually friends with McClintock and you guys uh, served together uh, in special forces. Can we talk about that a little bit?
3: Sure. I'd be happy to, um, Matt and I actually graduated the Q course together. Uh, we were assigned to first special forces group together, ended up on the same team, 1411. And then we deployed to the Philippines, to Thailand and to Afghanistan together. Uh, once we got back from Afghanistan, we parted ways. Uh, he went to 19th group while I, uh, got out and did, uh, civilian stuff. Um and then I was actually in Afghanistan le- this time last year in the same exact location I am now when I got a call from my old teammate saying that he had passed away from from being shot.
1: Yeah, you know it was crazy. I, I remember when it happened, you know, obviously it was early in the year. Um and with with there being like drawdowns, troop drawdowns and stuff like that. I think there'd been a lull in any uh, combat deaths for the United States for a while. And I, I remember hearing about it and being, I think everyone was kind of shocked in a way. But when it happened, I believe the his wife's friend created a GoFundMe account. And, it, you know, it started to spread around on the internet. And I remember sharing it and, and throwing up the link for it in my profile so people can contribute if they wanted to. And then obviously, you know, some of the big kind of social media... Uh, names and companies started to share it, and within a few days, I I think over a hundred thousand dollars was raised. So I thought that was really kind of a cool way that you know you can see the positivity that social media could have on
3: you know the military community and their families. Yeah, that's a a very good point. I mean, it was an incredible response to his death. I think that everyone was extremely shocked to hear about it. I mean, especially for SF guys, we hear that an SF guy dies. We know that a lot of SF teams are still in combat, despite what a lot of the general perception of the public that we're in a a non combat role. Uh, we know that we're still in combat all the time. So when we hear that somebody has been killed in combat, I mean, we always just jump to, "Oh, Oh God, I hope it's not one of my friends or it's not somebody I hope, or I hope it's not somebody I know. And unfortunately, this time around it was. And, you know, as much as that hurt and as much as we understand the risks, being able to see that, that kind of response from not only the SF and the military community, but from the the entire United States and the, the amount of shares and the amount of uh, attention it got on social media and the response on the GoFundMe page has just been, I mean, it was phenomenal. And then well, even more heartening has been the follow on response, uh, not only the the money raised, but, you know, just recently um, I got in touch with or somebody got in touch with me about how old teammates and new teammates um, who have checked into his old unit have been taking care of his house, have been watching his, uh, his son, have been house sitting so that his wife can continue to go to these events and still be a part of the community and still feel rightly so that she's part of the community and she will be for her whole life
2: and that's uh that's you know i think one of the things chris for me was you know when i heard it you know i i am always at the realization that you know stuff is going on over there but i i think it doesn't really hit the public you know it's amazing like the power of the image and i i think it was the first thing that really struck me. Like you hear about guys, you know, still rocking and rolling over there and, and doing their thing, but but I saw that image of um him holding his baby. And, you know, just the fact that he had been there um, you know, been home, you know, not 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 long before that. It was just such a powerful image and and man, it was painful to look at. I mean, I remember having to walk away from my computer, like, ah man, that was tough. So I'm uh, I'm sorry for your loss. I can't imagine and and I know that loss hurts the special forces community but but you know it really is amazing how, you know, we we really don't realize that there's still stuff going on over there cuz Cause, cause there is. I mean there's there is and it's very real still.
3: It is very real and you know, one of the uh, things that I always heard towards the end of my time in SF was, you know, we've always prided ourselves on being the quiet professionals. Um, and I know that word gets thrown out a lot. But our leadership was actually telling us, you know, hey, guys, you know, it's it's important that we still maintain being quiet professionals. But for so long, we've been the silent professionals. Uh, we're so quiet. We do our job so under the radar that people forget we exist. And... You know, in terms of this global war on terror and a lot of what we do, unfortunately, sometimes we slip so far outside the public radar that, unfortunately, it takes somebody getting killed in a un- really unfortunate scenario like this to kind of bring it back to the the foreground and remind people that we are actively engaged in this war on terror and that there is still a war going on around, not only there, but uh, around the world, I believe Seventh or third group just lost a guy not too long ago in Kenya. Um, I mean, there's 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 a huge, international conflict going on, and unfortunately, that sometimes the only time you ever hear about it is with the death of a of a very good guy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so, Chris, you know, you you had a your career in the army. You spent all of that in SF.
3: I did. Um, I was an 18 x-ray, uh, came in having wanted to join the special forces community ever since I was in college, hearing about it from one of the original SF guys who served under Aaron Bank, who was oh, wow. ended up being one of my uh, uh, good professors uh, and mentors there. And then uh, so I went to first group, spent my entire SF career in first special forces group uh, and then got out in 2015, tried to do this. Civilian uh, job application process, got a few interviews with some tech companies, tried to really sell myself as a a, uh, kind of a consultant, as that's where I found myself kind of transitioning the best into. And I think it was a mutually agreed upon thing after about six months that I just wasn't ready for it yet. Um, Looked into something that was kind of a halfway point, found a really good contracting Gig and have uh, been lucky enough to be successful at that ever since.
1: So you, your, your entire time as a Green Beret was as an 18 Delta, and for anyone who doesn't know, most of the audience probably does. 18 Delta is a highly specialized uh, special forces medic, and I believe that all of the special operations units within the United States sends all their medics to the same course. And I believe that course is ran by the 18 deltas, if I'm not mistaken.
3: That is correct. We do have um, some Navy SEAL um, IDCs. Uh, basically, all the special operations guys, it's primarily 18 deltas who run it. And then they also have some select other special operations guys who have been qualified who run it. But it's a it's a jointly run course out of Fort Bragg. Um the Joint Special Operation Medical Training Center, the Navy, um, and the Army run it concurrently, and it's, I mean, it's the world's premier medical facility, and it, man, they put you through the ringer, but they do produce the world's best medics, that is for sure.
2: You know, it's interesting, Chris, I, uh, I had a, uh, actually, one of my projects is on a guy, uh, Bert Koontz, and he was an 18 uh, Delta as well, uh, working on a SIF team, um, and um I just wondered how important, and it's something that I talked about with him was the importance of cross-training your guys, and so I wanted to know how how important was that to you, because I remember my infantry company, our medics, like I was very intent, I was a team leader, I was very intent on having my guys um, you know, and, and they'd get pissed off at me, of course, you know, because it would eat into their free time a little bit, but, you know, we, we'd get over there with the medics and we'd spend some time with the, with the medics, you know, kind of cross training. And so I always wanted to make sure my team was ready, but how, how important is that for unit readiness for, for even for you guys, you know, going over,
3: you know, it's, it's funny because as a medic, You almost feel bad when you have to tell people, hey, guys, today's cross training is going to be X, (laughs) Y or Z medical wise, because it takes away from the bullets and the explosions and the breaching and what you would consider to be the fun part of being in the military. And, you know, luckily for us, we one of our first overseas um, six week kind of training exercises, we got assigned to teach a TCCC medical course to the Thailand Special Operations Police. And luckily for us, it was in Bangkok. So real tough assignment there. <laughs> and our guys were super excited because they were like, oh, it's a medical course. I'm just going to give all the responsibility to Chris and he can teach the course and we're just going to go out and you know get lost in Bangkok and let ba- Bangkok take us away. <laughs> and uh, we, unfortunately for them, I found a way to put them all to work and we used it as a training exercise, not only for them, but for us. Uh, We would train every single night on the tasks that we were going to be training the Thai police on the next day. And over the course of six weeks, um, we, our entire team, became extremely adept at all facets of TCCC. Um, This, and it got guys to really appreciate and really understand not only the importance of it, but also, you know, anatomy, physiology, kind of the the inner workings of why we do what we do, and so from Chris, there we are. Yep, go ahead. Basically, what you're telling basically what
2: you're telling me, Chris, is that you were a buzzkill for your unit.
3: <laughs> I, I was the definition of buzzkill, <laughs> uh, and and as a brand new guy to the team, I know I was an E five X ray coming out of the course, being oh, essentially and Jay said all by myself and then demanding everyone on my team who is obviously senior to me that they do what I say because I'm in charge of this. And uh, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't make a whole lot of friends on that trip, uh, needless to say. But at the end, being able to learn all that and getting the appreciation for it served us extremely well. And we actually were asked to join another company for their Afghanistan trip later on, and a large part of it was due to our reputation as being very well cross-trained in all areas, including medicine. So a lot of the guys really had a good appreciation, and one of my guys who had been around for a very long time came up to me and said that in his entire SF career, he never understood or never felt more confident going to uh, a combat zone as he did now, because he knew every single guy on the team knew what they were doing if he were to get hurt. So that was a huge eye opener for me, and really kept me motivated to continue to press, you know, new guys that we got, and to continue to impress upon them the need for continual medical training throughout uh, the time on an ODA.
2: Right, and and you know the thing is, is you, you might be, you know, you might be the buzzkill there in that moment, but you're thinking, you know, of course, as a medic, you know, you're thinking long term, man, and there's never a situation that you get into in a combat zone where you're like, man, why did we do that cross training? What a bummer. Like, that really bums me out that we did that cross training with our medics, you know? Instead, <laughs> guys are going to be looking at you like, man, I know I called you, you know, I might have called you some bad things, but I'm really glad that we did that, you know? like, Yeah, so
3: he, and as a medic, too, I mean, you you have to think about your own survival, too. I mean, if you're the only person who knows what the heck he's doing and you get severely injured... You know, you have to rely on your teammates to not just be able to throw a tourniquet on and stare stand back and stare at you and hope that fixes a, a sucking chest wound. Um, so you're you do have to rely on your teammates for everything and, and you want to set them up for success. Um, even if you are, you know, a buzzkill and you prevent them from going home early on a Friday because it's Ivy Fridays and they just want to go home. So <laughs> I mean, you kind of establish a routine, they come to appreciate it, you add a little fun to the training, so it's not just a blase, you know, here's the same thing over and over again, but you know, if you're a good medic and you can keep the interest of the guys, they'll start to appreciate it.
1: So, you know, it's interesting that you bring it up, and this kind of ties in with a question that I had for you, Chris, but then also something I wanted to ask to you, Tim. So... You know, with this global war on terror continuing to to, uh, be fought globally, the, the number of fatalities on the battlefield have decreased and the number of wounded soldiers coming home have increased. And a large part of that is due to the... Well, there's several factors, but one of them is the ability for all of the guys on a team to be able to properly uh handle bleeding control at, at least for a time until they can get to a surgeon and or or you know to the next level of, of medical care now for for the audience who doesn't who might not know Chris, what is TCCC
3: it's tactical combat casualty care it's providing the right level of medicine at the right time in order to ensure maximal survivability okay. so essentially it's it's doing just enough at the right time to keep them alive, to get them to a higher level of care.
1: Right. Okay. So now, obviously, there's been some advancements in in the medical procedures and and, uh, medicine and things like that, equipment. But really, what I've come to understand that it really has made a huge difference in guys actually surviving would be Every guy on the team learning T Triple C versus just having the medic do it. Now, my question for you, Tim, was while well, you and your infantry company, did everyone was everyone proficient with tourniquets and things like that?
2: Oh yeah, um, we had to be. You know, we, we put a big emphasis on our um, on our on our medical training because we had a really good team of medics in our unit the 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 sad thing about it in the army is that and i don't know if it's like this always obviously um you know i was texas national guard it might be different but i know for my infantry unit we had a big emphasis on it all our all of our medics were emts or firefighters um so they constantly used uh they were always using their medical training um you know and and very often in real world scenarios so they were really proficient and, and just, you know, we called them, you know, we called them beast mode because they were always working out like when they weren't. So th- these dudes were just like yoked and being ready to go all the time. And you know, I was like, man, if anybody comes up on our medics, you're going to be scared. They're not even going to know they're our medics, man. It's crazy. Um, but They're all like firefighters on the side and, and stuff. But, um, you know, we put a huge emphasis on, going to the advanced medical classes that we had and, and, um, you know, we even had some, um, special forces guys come in and, and teach some, um, advanced level, um, medical, um, you know, like, like some of the, some of the teacher will see stuff, obviously not at the level you learn it, but, you know, just so we would know. But I remember one time when we were in a class and one of my guys was kind of like nodding off and stuff. And, you know, I, had, I was just telling my guys that, You've really got to pay attention um, in these classes because you have no idea how um, you know this is going to impact you over in a combat zone and and. Yeah, you know, he kind of, he kind of woke up as the day went on and, and really started to pay attention. But I remember when they started, you know, Chris, you, you know how it is when they put you in those stressful situations, you know, where for us, you know, we're, we're getting yelled at and they're yelling at us to, you know, uh, control breathing. And it's just, you know, they're putting you under that stress. And at the time you're going, man, is this really necessary? You know, but, um, you know, you get into a situation like that, it becomes so necessary. Um, and, and so we did, yeah, we, we, our unit put a ton of emphasis on advanced medical care and, and, you know, and, you know, just enough to where we could get them, like you said, into surgery, but that, that was such a major emphasis in our unit. I'm really glad it was, um, it's, it's huge over there.
3: Yeah, being stressed out and still being able to perform. I mean, I've seen guys freak out far more often during medical scenarios, especially when their friend is hurt, than they do in an ambush or a gunfight. Um, when it's somebody you know and you see somebody who you consider to be an incredible soldier, an incredibly strong individual, and they're seriously wounded, I mean, you your mind changes. You go from, hey, I can control the situation to hey, I need to know what to do to be able to save this person immediately. And the only way that you can appropriately respond to that is through continual training under stressful circumstances. So that kind of training and being put under that kind of training, especially the medical training, is essential to building that confidence on everyone on your team. So I'm glad you had that opportunity and had good medics in your unit.
2: Yeah, the medics were great. And um, and, and one thing that I will say is the emphasis – as it was placed, um, you know, you could really tell that it was almost infectious. So guys really started to jump on the train and get with it. And so we started doing some of that off time training because what our, what our medics would do is they would train our team leaders and then they would want the team leaders to be able to show the guys on their team, these techniques. Um, and they would, they would sit you down and watch you while you were instructing your team um, to make sure you were instructing them properly. So it took it, uh, they took it very seriously. A lot of, again, a lot of free time cut into, but you know, stuff that potentially saves lives, uh, saves lives over there. And it's, it's really so important. There, there can't be enough emphasis, uh, placed on that. I agree. So Chris, you typically
1: any, uh, special forces specifically in, a lot of times in the media, people will say you hear the word special forces to refer to a Navy SEAL team, but uh, technically special forces only refers to Army Green Berets. And a lot of people seem to jumble that. But uh, for anybody who's going through the Green Beret pipeline, who's trying to graduate through a Q course and then, uh, and, and that kind of thing, it's typically a long journey. And I know for the 18 deltas, it's even longer. Is it typically like a two year period of training?
3: Essentially, yeah. If you want to go through the entire SF pipeline as a medic, you're looking at a minimum of two years. Um, Most other MOSs, unless they've changed recently, they're around 13 weeks. Um, The 18 Delta course is 46 weeks, uh, plus additional weeks built in for uh, vacations, the Christmas break, etc. So, I mean, you're looking at a full year of schooling if you make it through on the first try. Uh, before you can be certified and to be honest it could it could be even longer because that course packs you with information but none of it is fluff none of it is unnecessary Uh, when you walk out as as an 18 delta or as a as a ranger medic or as a navy seal uh, independent duty corpsman you honest to god feel like you are the most prepared you will ever be in your life to save the life of a fellow uh, service member and that is it's the best feeling ever, and you feel like you've earned it, but you're also wanting to go out then and start proving it. Um, so it's those forty six weeks are absolutely necessary to produce the kind of of medics that the special operations community produces.
1: Yeah, and from from talking to you know some of our allied nations medics, uh, infantry medics, special operations medics, they've all had things to say along the lines of you know the the special operations medical community in the United States was very generous in, you know, like guys would come over here and, and train at the uh, 18 Delta course and they would have very good things to say about the advancements that were being made on the American side, but how they were willing to share this information with our allied nations medics and how it was really making a huge difference. Um, so Chris, can we talk about like, You know, what would you say is the number one cause of uh, a fatality on the battlefield?
3: Well, so going through the course, they tell you that, you know, there's a 90 percent of the people that you see who are wounded are either they're going to fall into two categories. They're either going to be no matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, there's going to be nothing you can do for them. And there's the people who, if you just sat there and watched them, they'd still be able to live. Now it's the 10% that get wounded that you can make a difference on. And that's what we really strive to focus on. So this, this day and age, what the most common cause of battlefield injury is, is exsanguination, which is bleeding out from the box, from the chest, from the, the abdominal region, um, or it's head injuries. So the the ability or the areas on the body where you have an extremely tough time controlling the bleeding. Um, We've focused so much, we've come such a long ways from the Vietnam era where I think it was some crazy stat where we lost 3,000 individuals simply from bleeding out from extremities. Um, We don't have almost any extremity deaths anymore bleeding out from extremities. Um, The vast majority of bleeders now or the vast majority of battlefield deaths now are from massive torso trauma and head injuries uh, that is how my 18 charlie uh, died in 2013 james grissom uh, he was unfortunately shot in the head and that is also how mcclintock died was shot in the head so these are the things that you know there's nothing we can do for them but we're still going to try our best to get them to germany to let their loved ones see them etc um you know we can train as much as we want in terms of medicine and we can do everything we possibly can for them, but there are certain people that we're just not going to be able to save no matter how hard we try.
1: So one thing that I, I you know, obviously being a civilian, you know, a lot of this stuff is interesting to me, and I think it's important that, you know, if civilians had more information on like TCCC and that sort of thing, because I, I, I'm i sure there's a lot of preventable deaths that could could be prevented here in the States, uh, you know, car crashes, that sort of thing, had people at the the scene of the injury or point of the injury had some type of training in bleeding control. So one concept that was introduced to me a few weeks ago, or maybe it was a couple of months ago, I think, uh, was like prolonged field care. And the way it was introduced, well, I read an article and it was talking about the the uh, the military was starting to shift its focus from uh, some of the medical training that it, it's currently excelling in now, but to being able to treat guys as if they weren't going to be able to get them to a hospital, you know, within that golden hour, uh, like right away. To, like So basically saying... You know, we'd be fighting an enemy where potentially we wouldn't dominate the skies and be able to get a medevac helicopter in as soon as possible. Um, Now, I I would imagine that that kind of medical treatment would require uh, different equipment or more equipment.
3: Yes. Um, And that's actually what differentiates a special forces medic from, say, a standard combat 68 whiskey or some of the, uh, even some of the basic soccer medics, is the second half of our course is essentially prolonged field care. Uh, we do battlefield, learn how to do uh, total intravenous um, anesthesia. Uh, we do amputations. We do sitting, uh, essentially we are learning to sit on a patient for up to 48 hours, um, doing all the necessary dropping of NG tubes, Foley catheters, being able to monitor vitals and and interpret them to figure out what is uh, what is happening with the patient. Um, so uh, an 18 Delta gets trained to the same level of trauma medicine that a lot of ranger medics, SEAL medics, um, a lot of special operations medics do. It's the ability to provide prolonged field care for 48 to 72 hours that really defines in 18 Delta versus the rest of the medics. So it's an important concept. It's it's very doable, but it's also very in-depth. So it would require a lot of study and a lot of understanding and, and understanding more than just the TCCC in order to make that happen. Um, I fully support that initiative and I hope everybody does it, but it does require a lot of time and a lot of effort on people's part to understand um, enough medicine to get them to that 48 to 72 hours.
1: Okay, cool. So uh, a question that I was kind of curious about, um, and I, I'm not sure how much you can talk about it if you can or not, but so, you know, the, the teacher see, like if you, on social media, there's a lot of military medics who have gotten out and now are, are running their own companies or they're training, you know, police officers or, or anyone who's interested in learning some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And you, you see a lot of, like, you know, guys placing tourniquets on people's legs, on their arms, that kind of thing. Now, you said one of the uh, number one uh, reasons that people were being killed on the battlefield was, like, a, a sucking chest wound, right? Now, obviously, you can't throw a tourniquet, or, or maybe you can, on someone's chest in in order to try and uh, stabilize them long enough to get them to a surgeon or something like that. How how does that work?
3: Well, what mostly kills people is actually the uh, bleeding out from the torso. So let's say they have a blast wound that takes off their legs, and there's no way to put a tourniquet up in where the intestines or the abdominal cavity is. So that's generally what kills the most people. there are still people who are dying from sucking chest wounds from the inability to recognize a collapsed lung and which leads to compression of the heart, which leads to, I mean, someone essentially dying from a preventable, um, injury. Now for too long. And for many, many years, the common perception was, you know, tourniquets are a last resort. Don't put on a tourniquet. Uh, You know, don't needle D somebody you have to put on a three way occlusive dressing on their chest if they have a sucking chest wound. One of the benefits, if you can call it that of war, is that our understanding of medicine and our understanding of what will save somebody versus what will kill them has come a tremendous way. And so now more and more fire departments and police departments and civilian paramedics are understanding that tourniquets are not the end of the world. They can be used as a first-line defense. You can put a four-way occlusive dressing on someone's chest and then needle d them as many times as necessary. Um, And these are all common level one tasks. These are not 18 Delta tasks. These are, you can teach this in a week-long class and feel comfortable doing it. So I think that's been a huge advantage of the progression of military to civilian medicine is that the lessons we're learning have become integrated with civilian paramedic um, stuff. And it's ended up saving a lot of lives. And it's I hope that we continue to do that because the medicine's there. It just needs to get pushed out to everyone who's willing to listen.
2: Hey, Chris, can you talk a little bit about the importance, you know, obviously in the Army, you know, you learn the use of a cat or a combat application tourniquet. Um, and, and, and one of those things, so can you talk about the importance of civilians learning some of these measures and and how important it is to learn how to use something as basic as a tourniquet.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I before and I don't know if this is bad luck or good luck, but before I went to the medical course, I had never seen a serious car accident. Since I've been a medic, I've been first on the scene at 3 of them. Wow. Actually put on a tourniquet on somebody? So, I mean, it's it's very relevant, and this is what I do when I teach um, friends and family who have asked me, is I say, you know, how much is, is your life worth, how much is your friend's life worth to teach or to learn for 30 minutes? Because just a basic understanding of how the body works and what you can do in the most simple way can make the difference between life or death in everyday scenarios. And especially, I mean, yes, it's still rare, but active shooters and the constant threat of terrorism or just anything that happens in our day-to-day lives is making it more and more susceptible to where, you know, an average everyday citizen may be called upon to save the life of another person. And, you know, taking a day or a week to learn some basic tourniquet skills or some basic anatomy skills to understand what's going on in the human body is i feel like a necessary skill to have especially as a parent or you know a spouse or anything where you have people that you love and you're essentially just not taking care of them if you can't learn the basics on you know to help them in an emergency so that's just something i really press upon Um, i've been teaching my family Uh, I've been answering a lot of questions on my Instagram account about the importance of it. It's just it's an extremely simple and effective tool to control the vast majority of injuries you're going to see on an accident site.
2: And it seems like some of that cross training or, or you know, civilian training has become a more obviously as the wars have gone on longer. And there's been more people that have come out of those uh, come out, you know, gotten out of the army or left, you know, left special forces and gone on to teach uh, civilian courses or courses that, um, you know, uh, help help first responders. How how. um. You know how much of an increase have you seen in the uh, civilians uh, reaching out and and wanting to get trained in these in these applications?
3: Oh, it's been huge. And what's been good is that a lot of former SF and Ranger and Special Operations medics have really they're very passionate about the art of teaching medicine as well as explaining it and getting out there and making a difference in the perception of trauma medicine in the civilian market. And more and more civilians, I had a civilian or a EMT paramedic just contact me from Florida recently and say that his his fire department finally switched to tourniquets. And he was wondering what I thought about that. And, you know, I told him, hey, it's long overdue. You guys are going in the right direction. Um, here's some good resources for you to go to, to you know, if you have any doubts Um, the the best thing about medicine, and this is how I actually introduced the class when I was in Thailand is that there's nothing about medicine that is secret. There's nothing classified. There is nothing that I cannot share with you that I've learned through success or failure in regards to helping you do the best you can to save the people you love. And, you know, there's the, the army or the, the military is not hoarding all of this, these lessons learned from war civilians, paramedics, uh, everything we've learned is out there. And it's just up to us to, I mean, to break bad habits or to to get through to people who have been told their whole lives, you know, tourniquets are bad and all this um, disinformation. So more and more medics are getting out there and, and spreading the word and trying to break through these barriers. And I think within the next five to 10 years, I think we're going to see a dramatic increase in the survivability of civilians as every fire department and civilian entity starts to adopt the full TCCC guidelines.
2: How important, um, you know, how important, because in an infantry company, one of the things that we're big on, um, you know, period, is just making things instinctual so that, you know, response in combat is it it becomes something where it's instinctual, like mag drills, like, you know, anything like that, where, you know, shooters reflex drills, where you respond to aggression with aggression, and you don't think about it too long because, because once you get into this mode where we think too deeply on something, obviously it changes the scenario or the situation. How important is it to just repeat these things over and over again? I mean, I'm kind of answering my question Um, you know, um, but how, how important is that to make it instinctual?
3: It's extremely important. Um, just like all skills that we learn, if we don't practice, um, they become perishable. So what we used to do on my team, and I don't know how (laughs) it would work well with others. Um, but there would be times where I would set up a massive trauma scenario in my team room in the morning. And when guys would come back from the gym, I would throw a tourniquet and a med bag at them and be like, Hey man, you have a patient in there who's bleeding, go assess them and do a complete head to toe. And it would completely catch them off guard. They were not in that mindset whatsoever. And they would have to go in and under supervision, they would have to address all the major issues going, you know, the entire March algorithm And I would assess them and tell them, hey man, like you obviously forgot this, this, and this. Now I know what we're gonna do for team training on Friday. And so guys started to take it seriously. They started to really pay attention. And it's one of those, if you don't practice, you're going to lose stuff. And as a medic, or especially um, knowing that we were going to be in combat soon, there's really no excuse for not staying up on your skill set. Even knowing the basic March algorithm, you know, massive hemorrhaging, airway, respirations, all that, um, just knowing that basic thing can get you through 90% of all trauma scenarios. So once that happened and guys really start to get drilled in and toned in on that, then we, you saw a big change in guys. They started to become very confident in what they were doing. And the next time I had a trauma scenario for that, they didn't get that bug eyed look of deer in the headlights. They just reacted and they did very well. And that's I think that was the point I knew that we were ready to deploy from a medical standpoint.
1: So, Chris, can you share a story with the audience where, you know, perhaps like on deployment or something where you were in a scenario where you had to treat Uh, maybe one of your teammates or a guy that you were on an operation with?
3: Sure. Um, This actually happened probably within the first week that I had set up a VSO site in Afghanistan. We were in Orgun province uh, near the Pakistan border at a VSO site far away from everything. And I was still setting up my clinic because we were in a new site and I was trying to get everything just right. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere uh we were told that we had a patient at our at our gate essentially and one of our ALP sites had just been attacked and they were bringing in a casualty to me and i was like okay you know what's wrong with him and they told me he had been shot in the foot and i was like oh great my first medical casualty in afghanistan is a guy who shot himself in the foot probably <laughs> and the guy comes in and I don't know how this got lost in translation, but the guy had been hit by an RPG. He had shrapnel sticking out of his skull. He had wow. through and through gunshot wounds to both thighs. He had a pars- partial evisceration of his stomach, so his his intestines were sticking out. So all these like kind of obscure medical techniques that they teach you in the 18 Delta course about protecting protruding shrapnel from the head and and doing these abdominal tacos and things like that. Like I got experience on my very first week in Afghanistan and it was one of those, I was, I was not in that mindset of receiving a casualty. I was not necessarily like my medical clinic wasn't completely ready to go. And all of a sudden I'm sitting on a patient who is very, very wounded and I have to now pull out everything that I've learned and apply it seemingly all at once and the guy we we got him out of there completely bundled up ready to go the helo was there in about 45 minutes and he survived and was back with his unit with by the time we left country about nine months later so i mean it was it just shows (laughs) that you just you never know when things are going to get happened and you can't just turn off that medical mindset you always have to you know, even if you're presented with somebody that you necessarily weren't prepared for at the time, you just got to make it happen. You got to rely on that training and, and everything that you've worked for to just kind of react and let your instincts and your, your training for years to take over at that point. And it definitely set the tone for the rest of the deployment. And,
1: and just for for the audience who might not know what is a VSO?
3: I'm sorry VSO is village stability operations. Um, we went from kind of more of a invasions direct combat type scenario for the first eight years of the war. Uh, 2000 I believe I might get my dates wrong a little bit but towards 2009, 2010 we started setting up these remote locations where we put in an SF ODA, a 12man team plus some supporting elements. Um, out in different regions of Afghanistan. And our goal was to build up the local defense forces. So we would partner with local villages who are friendly to kind of push back the Taliban, kind of get the the local villages, the local elders to invest in their own security, uh, get some white space developed, kind of get them to understand that they do have control over their security. They don't just have to be Um, under the influence of the Taliban. um, And then we would set up the Afghan local police. We would get some recruits from these villages and kind of make like a local police force where they could defend themselves against the Taliban. Uh, We also did direct action missions, stuff like that. But we were not in a major base. We were completely off on our own, essentially, uh, while doing this. So it, it was meant to get us involved more with the local populace, not just rolling out every morning from the same large army base and trying to establish a connection with people an hour away, but actually living with them, interacting with them. Uh, we did medical clinics for their children, you know, just try and take a more active approach to solving the issue on the ground itself rather than just kind of being a every week or so presence in their lives.
1: So that, that's kind of like the classic Special Forces mission, right?
3: Right. I mean, you can kind of think of it as like a, a Vietnam A-camp, yeah. but uh, <laughs> but in Afghanistan with 12-foot mud walls, um, not not exactly a, a perfect analogy, but very similar. Um, we worked a lot with, we paired up with the the Afghan local police, the commandos, uh, et cetera, to just try and create as much, we tried to get them to take responsibility for their own security, whether that was the village police or whether the uh, afghan national police or even the the afghan army just kind of enable them to begin taking control of their own security um in preparation for the drawdown later that year and in the years following
2: um can you talk about chris can you talk about something you know it, it, the thing that that was the toughest on me in the, in these, you know, practical, uh, situations where they're, t- where they're taking you through to training and all that is, you know, really, uh, stress management. How, how important is the teaching of stress management? And do you believe that, do you believe in certain, um, mental techniques or 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 are you more of just the opinion that instinctual training just doing it over and over and over again or 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 you know what's the important of stress management training in a situation like that
3: you know i think the more you're exposed to it the more and the more scenarios you've seen the more comfortable you feel i think however in my experience and in the experience of scenarios that i've seen in real life when some specifically talking about when people are injured nothing really prepares you for that moment in a way that you can react how you think you're going to react um the biggest thing that i've learned and that i've focused on is taking that tactical pause you know your mind's going a million miles a minute um there was a scenario where i happened to turn during a mission and see a ground-based IED go off, and three of my teammates were hit and started tumbling down a hill. And you know, you can't—I can't just run, up, rush up to them because I know that there's potentially other ground-based IEDs in the area. My mind's going a million miles a minute as to what injuries they may have and what I'm going to be doing, and you know what the evac time is, et cetera. And then you know, eventually, you just kind of calm yourself down and say, okay stop thinking five steps ahead, go through your march, you know, your massive hemorrhaging, just go through your process for this, you know, just do the same thing that you've been doing ever since day one of med school, go through it, don't try and get ahead of yourself. And then, you know, just repeating that over and over and focusing on that really helped me get past the what ifs and the, and all the other potential scenarios that happened during that time. So really it's just about find something that works for you for me it's going back to that simple abc's of medical care and from there you can kind of dive into other areas but you know no scenario is the same it's just uh find something that works for you take that tactical pause and then just do what your training has taught you to do
2: yeah and and, and what going into a, uh, into a actual situation, you know, how does that in that, when that happened for you, how did that translate? I mean, you know, all that training, you know, obviously d- did it feel instinctual in the moment?
3: It really did. Um, I was actually surprised at how, after the first 30 seconds of, you know, a lot of expletives going through my mind and a bunch of what if scenarios and you know the the holy craps and all that um when i actually was able to get to my teammates and and was able to assess them you know it was i was actually surprised at how calm i had managed to be or at least exude externally um my teammates told me that i seemed very calm and i remember being calm but i remember my heart beating out of my chest you know you <laughs> as a medic, you know, you can do a thousand things correctly. You screw up one time and your teammates are going to remember that for the rest of your life. Right. Uh, and you don't want to fail them when it's their friend and your friend and your teammate. Uh, so being in the moment, staying in the moment and just trusting that everything you've done up to that point is correct. And just taking the time to relax, get in the moment and really trust your training. Um, Too many people just, they see something, they see blood in a certain area or they see, you know, a guy's leg destroyed and they forget about everything else and just focus on that, that one injury. And that's where the real training comes in is being able to, you know, put that aside and go through your entire assessment from top to bottom so you can do the proper treatment and find everything that's wrong with them. So, I was, It's it's tough. Um, you never know how you're going to react in a given scenario, but hopefully, when you're presented with that scenario, you know you just you take that pause, and then you kind of just revert back to all right. Go back to training. What do I need to do? And then just follow that, and it works. It's worked for me every time. So I've been fortunate in that regard.
2: You know, Chris, one of the interesting, one of the most interesting projects I just, you know, I'd done was just recently, and it was actually a World War II veteran um, um, named Alfred Haas, who was in the Pacific Theater, and he was uh, held on the Bataan Death March, um, which he survived. Um, He hit a conventional bomb dropped on his uh, camp, and it was an Allied bomb, And, you know, obviously they weren't allowed to run to the air raid shelters. The Japanese wouldn't let them. So he stayed out. He was hit by shrapnel. It took his arm off. Um, But he talked about how the importance of staying calm in the moment and almost realizing like, hey, I've got no other choice. I'm either going to treat this or I'm going to die. So, you know, wrapping the using his belt as a tourniquet to wrap his arm up. And he said, basically, you know. His own application of that. So, you know, self-aid in that situation was so important because he would have died because the Japanese didn't care. They just let him go for five hours. I mean, it was five hours before they started aiding him at all. So he it really setting that tourniquet properly at the moment in the moment is what saved his life um, in that in that moment.
3: Yeah, it's a very good point. And that's one of the first things that we drill on when we first get new guys is self-aid i mean we always start with self-aid and then buddy aid and then if the the medic is available the medic will come to you but you know if you're trapped behind a wall and rounds are going off and i'm not running out into active fire to try and get you if you've been shot like you've got to help yourself because i'm going to become another casualty and now my teammates are down two teammates and one of their medics you know so it, it buddy aid is extra and self-aid is extremely important and you know we train offhand we train you know one arm two arms you know how to do through the right loops on the legs um and getting guys to not just go through the motions but also to understand what's happening to their bodies you know if you have a, a nick in your chest cavity and 20 minutes later you realize you're having trouble breathing you can recognize that without me doing an assessment, that you might have a collapsed lung and be able to speak intelligently on it or to be to potentially to be able to needle D yourself. So, not only training yourself and training others to appropriately uh, do self aid, but also being able to recognize what the body's telling you so you can do it yourself if a medic's not available.
2: Yeah, wow. Well, You know, when you're going through those through those uh, classes, um, you know what 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 was for you? What was the number one thing that you learned in 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 all that? I know there's a lot, there's so much information, but out of all the information that you learned, what's the what's the one thing that really that's really stuck with you the most through all your training?
3: I think the biggest thing was that the body is an incredible incredible uh, thing that is going to do everything it can to fix itself and kind of trust it and know that even a simple intervention, you know, you don't have to do a million things necessarily to keep someone alive. Your body is going to do everything it can. It's got these amazing built-in mechanisms to save itself. And as long as you can understand the basics of medicine and be able to stop the bleeding you know, recognize a, a, the need for an upgraded airway, uh, things like that. The body is going to mostly do the rest of the work, and that is something that I really press with my guys is understanding a lot of that and understanding the anatomy and physiology to a, on a basic level of saying, "Hey, you don't need to do 15 interventions on this guy. Do this and this, and let the body fix itself." And I think that's been one of the biggest eye-openers for me is just how incredible the body is at being able to regulate and fix itself. And we're only here to do enough to let the body do that.
2: Right. Now, uh, talk about the transition a little bit. You know, you've moved into a different role. Um, you got not, out of, you gotten out of special operations, obviously. But how has that training now helped you in the world that you're in
3: now? Well, you know, when I got out of the military, I think I did what a lot of people do and I told myself, "All right, you know, you're going to relax. You know, take a couple months. You've been deployed or in training 10 to 11 months a year for the past X amount of years. Take time to go see family, take time to get to know your friends who you've neglected for the past 5 years for no reason other than you've been gone this whole time and and just kind of just kind of take time for yourself and uh, day 2 I was like, this is this is terrible. I need to find a job. This is awful. <laughs> um,
2: so, Isn't that like all you guys? Isn't that like all you guys special operations guys? You're like out for like five hours. You're like, oh, I got to yeah. do something right now. Oh, <laughs>
3: yeah, I, I felt like a complete hobo. I mean, there was just I, like a waste of space. Like I was a detriment to society. Um, so it was it was kind of a, trying to find a good civilian job that fits with what you've been doing is very hard to translate Um, a lot of civilian companies these days rightly or wrongly don't really understand what military members and especially special operations members can bring to their company so it's very hard to write a resume or write a cover letter that says hey i would be perfect for your job in x y and z because i have these experiences and trust me they translate but i don't really know how until you interview me and I can tell you so it's very hard to break that threshold of trying to translate what you've done and the experiences you've had and the problems you've worked through as a soldier in Afghanistan or in the Thailand or in the Philippines or wherever you may go and try and convince a hiring manager at a big global 500 or you know corporate 500 company to be like hey I'm a perfect fit for you in your little den of nerds or whatever it may be, um, to really be a good fit. And by saying Den of Nerds, I've probably established that I'm not a good fit. But um, it, it, is, it was very frustrating. You know, all these jobs that I, I looked at and was like, hey, you know, this would be a perfect fit for me. I really think I could do well. I was either not getting a call back on or just never heard from them. And, you know, it started to get frustrating. I knew I had value. I knew I had worth to bring to these. But It also made me think that, hey, you know, I really miss the camaraderie of of guys similar to me. And maybe I'm not ready to totally give this desire and this ability to do this, you know, the medicine or to serve overseas up. So I looked into contracting thinking, ah, you know what, let me just let me take a look at this and just kind of use this as a transitional job, kind of work civilian, but still in a military mindset. Found something that uh, I really liked. Um, and came over here and it was super interesting because my, my last trip over here, I opened the door to my room and the guy next to me opens the door to his room. And I look at him and I was like, I recognize you. And he goes, Oh, you do. He was my selection cadre when I went through <laughs> SF. Selection. Wow. And wow. He, was, he was the bane of my existence. Uh, <laughs> he was the guy who, you kind of kept your head down when you were in selection and just prayed to whatever God you believed in that he wasn't your team week uh, guy because 16 guys would go out with him during team week and only six or seven would make it back. The rest would quit or be broken. And, um I remember in selection one time and we were, we had to carry these sand, we called them sand babies. They were these giant sandbags and I nicked the ground, which we weren't allowed to do. And he just looks at me and just said, you proud of yourself, you failed everyone. (laughs) And uh, I I remember that for the rest of my time, I was like, well, I'm not getting selected now. Uh, This has been a fun ride. And uh, I didn't see this guy again, but for whatever reason, I remembered him specifically. And then sure enough, not only was he on the same contract as me, but I was actually his team leader. So a little bit of a wow. uh, full circle retribution <laughs> happening. But uh, Dude, I would have give, me- given it.
2: I would have given it to him so bad whenever he his team. See, that's why I don't make it into that's why I don't ever get into these roles where I have any type of ownership of anything. That's why. Because <laughs> then I'd just be the ultimate jerk. I'd be like, hey, remember me, bro? <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah he, I know you were trying to help me out and everything, but you really didn't have to be that hardcore.
3: <laughs> yeah. Well, and it was funny because I even asked him, I was like, Hey, do you remember me? And he just looked at me, he's like, No, nah, man, I have no idea who you are. I was like, oh, shit, <laughs> It hurts a little bit, but I, you know, I'm not terribly surprised. Um, but he, he's one of those break glass and time of war guys. I mean, he just, awesome. He is just one of those you're glad he's on your side kind of individuals. So I was happy to have him, and and very lucky that he ended up on the same job I was at. It was just it was a funny turn of events to have someone who meant so much to you, and you meant so little to him, and now. You know, the the roles are reversed and you're his mentor in a new job. So that was kind of funny.
2: You know, those are the guys that you're always glad to see, though, when you're when you've made it through that time of period, that that period of instruction and you get done. I mean, for me, you know, very on the on the basic level, you know, of, of BCT at Fort Knox was like, you know. I obviously, I had this one drill sergeant that I just felt like was always individually searching me out. I was like, how does this guy know where I am at all times? Like, it is like his personal vendetta to go after 17-year-old Tim Kolzak, you know? <laughs> like, just always, like, seek out and destroy me, like, was his mission, I felt like, you know? um, You know, I, I remember, like, one incident, and this is, you know, very minor compared to anything you went through, but, you know, I, I was like... You know, I I I grew hair. I grew facial hair really fast, but I I would shave very seriously. You know, I took it very seriously, but always like midway through the day, I always have like a little bit of growth, I guess. And and he would just like he lit me up. I mean, I can't. I didn't even know you could put some of those words into one sentence, like the way he. The I mean, he was inventive with the way he constructed his his cuss words. It was amazing. Like and you know, I was impressed. Like. And it all came out like a machine gun, you know. He was, I was like, "Kolzak, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing, Kolzak?" And like, you know, he just <laughs> destroyed me. It's like, "Did you shave your face, Kolzak? Did you shave your face?" And I'm like, uh, <laughs> "Yes, Joe Sergeant. Yes, Joe Sergeant." He's like, "No." He goes, "I don't think you understand me." He asked this question like six times, and I didn't get it. I'm like, "He goes, shaving is the process of removing hair off your face." And like, and like, he's like, "You did not remove the hair off of your face." And he made me carry a shaver in my, in my BDU, like, my top pocket, and it would, like, stick out everywhere I marched. And I had to do that for, like, two weeks. It was so humiliating, man. Every time he'd be like, did you shave your face? I had to get down and do 25 push-ups. I was, like, every single time. And he, he made it his mission to, like, ask me that throughout the day, like, a 100 times. Um, but I, I just remember when I graduated is Joe Sergeant Reagan and I remember when I graduated he was actually a silver star recipient in Iraq and um he just he was taking it very seriously obviously he didn't it's 2005 man you know a lot of guys were getting hurt and wounded over there uh hurt and killed over there so he's taking this training extremely seriously and he just wanted us all to make it you know and and he it was his personal mission and I remember graduating and he shook my hand and it was like I was receiving like a handshake from a god, you know, it was like, oh my gosh, he just shook my hand. But it's amazing how it comes around full circle. Like it, that, that you probably like, when you got through, you're probably, you know, you probably like looked up to that guy, you know?
3: Oh, I absolutely did. I mean, of all the people in selection, he was the one guy that I remembered as, as that guy. Like, I don't remember a single other I went through selection. I don't know if you've ever watched the Discovery Channel Two Weeks in Hell um, yes, about SF selection. I went through the class maybe two months prior to that being filmed. Okay. In fact, a lot of my teammates are in, in that in that show. But all the same selection cadre were there. I don't remember any of those guys except for what I've seen on the on the video but I remembered this guy. I remembered his last name. I remembered what he looked like. I remembered everything about him. So when he turned around and looked at me, I was just like, my world came crashing <laughs> down, just right there. I mean, it was like a flashback in a movie. I was like, this can't be happening. Why is he next to me right now? So it was, it was interesting to say the least, uh, almost like a full circle, you know, and I immediately felt intimidated again. Like I was back in, back in selection. And, uh, it was nice. I mean, he was totally chill and, and relaxed and everything. We were we established a good relationship, but man, it was I bet if you could meet that same drill sergeant today, it'd be an interesting relationship as well oh yeah no i still think
2: i'd like no matter what i could be like his manager like his ceo and i still i'd still probably be like yes joe sergeant like you know like i've got like that mental he had these piercing blue eyes man where it like looked like he was looking through you at all times and like you're like man i bet this guy could kill me in like 0.5 seconds (laughs) like i i he just was one of those humans that seemed extremely dangerous and who you always want on your side you know like that was him so i imagine even if i'd Still probably feel like you, or right? I'd be like, you know, if I'm a, well, you know, I'm, I might be your team leader, but you know, we're, we're cool, right? <laughs> you know, oh, like,
3: oh yeah, I was still trying to to get this guy's approval, even if yeah. I was just, you know, like, hey, this this isn't over, like you will respect me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: So, so now in, in that transition, you know, in in coming into new, you know, in that kind of civilian role, what was that like? What was the toughest part of? you know, leaving the world of the army and leaving the world of special forces and, and, and what was the toughest part of transitioning into this, into the civilian role?
3: Well, I think the toughest part of leaving the army was you kind of feel like a quitter, you know, all your friends are for the most part still in and and still involved in the community. And, and you almost feel like you're turning your back on them by determining that, you know, it's some, it's a new time in your life. You know, you want to move on, you have things that you want to do um, and you just kind of feel like you don't have that same structure, that same camaraderie that you found in the military. You know, you, you're still friends with them on the outside. But, you know, I went to some some team parties after I got out. Um, you know, they were nice enough to invite me, but it, it wasn't the same. Like I wasn't part of the team anymore, even though I had just been part of the team a couple months prior. So that was probably the toughest part is just not feeling like you were part of that same community, because you know, in any special operations unit, you had to earn your right to be there. You had to fight to get there. You had to you ex- experience so many different hardships with these guys to be with those guys. And now they kind of look at you like, "Oh, look at the look at the mercenary over here. Look at the guy who quit on us." You know, they might talk smack about their job and how miserable it is and how they can't wait to get out. But because you got out, you're the dirt bag. And you know it's whether that's fair or not. That's kind of how you feel as a guy who got out is, especially without a job immediately lined up. You just kind of feel like you know why did I do this? Why did I leave my friends? Why did I leave the closest thing I had to family for the past eight years um, to go out on my own and and try something new? You know, maybe I should have just stayed. And you know, it's it's a rough couple months until you get that behind you but it's definitely the hardest part of the transition is feeling like you left guys behind
2: so now i've got to ask that why why did you get out um what 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 what, made, what led you to that decision
3: you know i when i got in the military i thought i was going to be a lifer i thought there's no way i'm ever getting out this is what i wanted to do since i was eight years old and then the more I was in it, the more I felt like I had just kind of had enough. Um, I had done 10 to 11 months a year for the past five years. We're all either training somewhere outside of Washington, deployed. Um, yeah, I was having almost no time at home whatsoever. Uh, I I had an apartment that I was paying absurd amounts of money for. And in a one-year period, I stayed there for 47 nights. So, (laughs) you know, eventually you just get worn down. And my next step, I had done two combat deployments and had spent, you know, almost five years on a team. My next uh, assignment was going to be to the schoolhouse and a three-year stint. And I have always had an interest in business and something, and I knew I wanted a family at some point. And so I, I was like, hey, I'm at that eight year mark. I either re-enlist and go past that 10 year mark, in which case I might as well just stay 20 or you get out now, reinvent your your career and your life and and try something new. So, you know, there hasn't been a, a week that's gone on since I've got out where I've been like, mm, maybe I want to kind of dip my toe back into it and see what there is. Um, but I, I eventually talk myself out of it. So. It's uh, it's still hard. I still miss the job. I still miss the guys, but I regret it a lot less now than I do when I first got out. And and
2: I can imagine um, even more so, you know, for a lot of you guys because initially, I know when I mean the like for me, like you know, on the regular army side, like when I I when I uh, joined, I was like, all right, we got. Five years, three hundred and fifty five days left to go. <laughs> you know, like I yeah. was I was I was on my way out when I joined, you know, like I was like, man, but you guys and, and it's not that I didn't like like my favorite part of being in was being in Iraq, honestly, man. Like my favorite part of being in the military, and, and that sounds strange to some people when I tell them like deployment was by far my favorite part of being in the Army. I guess it's because, like, you get to practically apply all the things you've learned. And and so some of my best and worst days were overseas, Um, but by far my best days um, in the military. And the thing that I look to the most now that I've gotten out and that I'm glad for is that, uh, you know, I did get to serve um, in that regard. But for you guys, I mean, it's really a lifestyle, man. Like I, I mean, I looked up, you know, on the infantry side. And John, I've told you this before, but the regular, we look up to those guys like gods, man. Like they're like titans to us. Like and and right now, Chris is like, nah, bro, it's not that big of a deal. But to me, <laughs> yeah, he's like, cause you know, it always happens. Like anytime I talk to Nate, when I talk to Nate Boyd, my buddy. Um, it's always the same. He's like, bro, it's not that big of a deal. It's really not that. And I'm like, stop right now because I know what you're going to say. And I don't care. We do look up to you like Titans. We really do. It's like our, you guys are our heroes. And, and, and realistically, um, you know, any guy that says you're not like that, they're like, they're really just, that guy's just really, truly a dick. And like, he doesn't want to like, he doesn't want to like admit like, you know, but, but you guys, we really look up to you, dude. So I can imagine that, you know, that getting out when it's really like a lifestyle to you, you know, that's that's your life, you know, being a warrior and,
3: and a healer. Um, yeah, it really was.
2: It's got to be tough, man. It's got to be tough. I can't imagine.
3: Yeah, it's uh, luckily enough for me, I knew with about six months left in my contract that I, you know, I wasn't a last minute decision kind of guy. I knew with about six months left. So they allowed me to try and they put me in the battalion med um, section so I could you know, get to all my appointments and schedule stuff, and but man, it was so hard to be able because my team then left again after I went to the battalion med section, and I just felt like such a a quitter. You know, just I felt so bad about it, and because it is a lifestyle. I mean, it's not a job. It takes up even when you're home on weekends, you're still thinking about your job. Um, you know, you you go to schools to get better at your job. I mean, no one ever joins the military. I mean, it, I liken it to no one ever joins a sports team to just practice the entire time. Eventually you need to play a game, and that's what right. deployments are. And there was no off season for us. We we got back from Afghanistan, we had a 30-day R&R and we immediately began to train up for a 7-month deployment to the Philippines. I mean, it was just there wasn't that that downtime that you come to expect or come to need to really have that peace of mind. And you know, as a single guy, not that difficult for me, but I saw the toll it took on families and realized that, you know, that that may work for some guys and some guys and their families are super strong and can make it work, but it would never work for me. And so that was one of the reasons I chose to to get out now as opposed to wait until it became a, a hardship.
2: Oh, I was the same way, man. When I got out, I was like, um, that, you know, this, I was on my way out anyways, but another reason that I really thought, you know, about, getting out was just i didn't want to have to put a family through that eventually because i saw same thing as you obviously it's even worse on your side but you know on our side guys doing five and six deployments man like in the army i mean on a, on the regular side that's 12 that could be 12 to 18 months we had one guy that was in our unit who'd been in the who was in the minnesota national guard i don't know if you're familiar with their story but they were in they were in the Ramadi area of operations for like 22 months. That's they got out to the, they got out to the, they had the longest appointment I think in, in, in the, in the history of OIF, OEF, but he, so the company commander comes out, uh, you know, on the helipad to, to his guys and tells them, Hey, we're getting extended by six months guys. And, um, And, you know, it ended up, they got extended like two more times in the same scenario, um, to the point where the third time they got to the helipad, my buddy, uh, Steve, he said, dude, I didn't think we were leaving. Like, I thought it was a dream because, you know, he's like, and then the ultimate nightmare where you get told you're staying, but they were running, you know, they were running convoy operations through Ramadi and Fallujah, man. So they really got jacked up bad and they were, you know, and, and but being over there for 22 months you know he said he came home and his daughter was 3 years old That's you great know and it was just like you know earth shaking um you know so so these guys doing 6 or 7 deployments man with families it's like it's it's so rough i mean you remember john carter you remember carter chick that i covered for the project you know um rest in peace i mean he you know he uh that that was the thing, man. He was gone for like six of his kids, seven, you know, seven years of his life. So he said, when he got home, he's like, "I didn't even know my kid. I didn't know him. Right. I mean, and that and that's that's so tough, man. So so I feel you on that. I feel you on on because I felt the same way. I'm like, I don't know if I could have a family and do this. Right.
1: So, C- Chris, you also aside from you know getting into the contracting that you're doing now. You also created a company as well, right? Can we talk about that a little bit?
3: I did it. Uh, the idea came to me about six months before I got out, and you know, as a medic, you know, I was constantly frustrated at not having just simple to use, simple to understand medical guides. Uh, the Ranger Medical Handbook, you know, all that is great resource. You know, I feel like with the amount of material that I took with me on deployments, I could have done a cesarean section on someone while also removing their intestinal parasites i mean like the amount of information we had access to was phenomenal but the amount of information that we had small enough to take with us out on patrol just wasn't there so i started kind of coming up with these ideas to make these pocket-sized guides that had just the stuff that you needed you know we the nine lines the missed reports the the parkland burn formulas the glasgow coma scale that kind of stuff um just the stuff that like hey i'm kneeling over a patient i need to remember x y and z so i don't have to think of you know every little thing i have it on me so i can concentrate on actually focusing on bandaging this patient up and then not having to remember what eye movement means on the glasgow coma scale so i created kind of a this little guide kept it with me, would go out to these training scenarios and all the other medics would see it and be like, Hey man, what's that? And I would show it to them, like, Oh man, you got to print me off this. This is a fantastic idea. And I was printing out so many copies of these things that eventually I was like, you know what? I should probably just actually have these professionally printed because I'm kind of embarrassed to put my name on this half ass printing job right now. (laughs) Um, and showed it to some of my 68 whiskey friends and they were like, hey, man, can I get a couple copies of these to my friends? And so eventually I was like, you know what? Like, in order to get it to everybody, let me just create a company, get it to as many people as I can. And it's it's actually really taken off. So I've been very happy with it, um, and we're excited. We've just been contacted by a couple of other units who are going to supply their entire medical uh company with them so you know oh, i've had gosh. i just i just had a friend in iraq contact me and say hey man i just had a uh a medical training scenario with some marines that came from another base um and sure enough like one of the other marine medics just pulled out your guide while we were doing the medical scenario i was like oh this is so cool yeah it's so cool to actually see that you're making a difference to guys who are deployed and and I've gotten a lot of good feedback on it so I'm very very happy with that and very because it keeps me involved in the medical community as well and and that's something that's extremely important to me was the training side and now kind of the uh taking something that I've learned and passing it on to to other medics.
1: And and you guys also have uh other like medical equipment available on your website as well?
3: Yes, we do. Um I partnered with a company called Wild Hedgehog. Um they put together medical kits Uh, Some really good medical kits for austere environment. Just the basics of tourniquets, um, bandaging, things like that. Nothing extravagant, but just what you need to keep in your car, to bring you with you camping, to assess um, just basic injuries. And I, the response has been really phenomenal, and you know, I'm very happy to start make to grow the company and make it a full spectrum medical resource company and. It's something that I didn't really think about when I first started this. My original goal was to just get some some medical kits out to guys and help them do their job better, and it's it's taken off into something I never expected, And but I couldn't be more pleased with it because I really take a lot of pride in what I do and, and what I offer, and it's I'm excited for it to grow. That's awesome,
1: man. And, and what's the name of the company, and what's the website for anyone in the audience who's interested in uh, checking it out?
3: Okay. It's, uh, the website name is readywarriorllc.com. Uh, same with, if you want to get me on Gmail, it's readywarriorllc at gmail.com. Um, I also run an Instagram page, all one word at special forces medics. Um, and I also have a Facebook page, uh, just look for special forces medics. Uh, I'm sure ex- I'm, you guys hopefully can tell I'm extremely approachable. Uh, I'm probably the worst CEO of a single-run company ever in terms of like the the business acumen. I'm not gonna, <laughs> you know, if you need something or have a question or just whatever, just just contact me. Um, I love sharing advice and I love offering it. And you know, my goal is to get this in your hands, not to not to make a ton of money off these. To be honest, like I just want you guys to do well as medics. So this is all. Just contact me on the website or by email. Or drop me a line on my uh, my social media. I'd be happy to talk to you.
2: Hey, man, I just started following you on Instagram right now. How, see how quick that was? I like it. <laughs> so, Chris, uh, going into the transitional phase and everything, and, and now all that you're doing, obviously, in the medical community now, what will be your biggest advice? to? Because, you know, on the project, my big focus uh, is on integration and reintegration into uh, society, into polite society. And showing what civilian, you know, what it's like on the civilian side now, and, and that's been a big connecting factor uh, for people, is showing people the individual side of, of you know, of us. And not, you know, just some robotic mass. where we're all individuals, we all do things outside of the military once we get out. And and, and what advice would you give uh to, to people that are, are thinking about that transition and, and getting out?
3: My biggest advice would be to to stay positive, to stay active, to, to be persistent. Um, it's really easy to get frustrated when you get out at the lack of opportunity. I mean, in the military, you have you know, just job security, you build a reputation, you get different job offers open to you because of your reputation. In the civilian world, you're essentially starting over and have to build this reputation all over again. Um, especially if you're not networking in order to get a job. So you really have to be persistent and patient um, in looking for these things. And don't be afraid to sell yourself for all that you have to offer. I mean, don't be afraid to put all your qualifications down and call that company and say, hey, you know, I just sent you my resume. I'd really like to talk to you about it and don't take no for an answer. Uh, There's a bad perception out there, again, right or wrong about veterans. And, you know, they might have PTSD issues or they're nothing but gunfighters or, you know, whatever other negative perception comes with with veterans. And, you know, veterans have an incredible amount of skill sets and persistence and work ethic to offer. And we need more guys in these civilian jobs that can translate that for us. And so just be persistent and be patient and don't shortchange yourself when you talk to these companies about what you have to offer. Um, They don't know what you have until you are in front of them describing it and trying to convince a 25 year old HR representative your value and your merits is tough. And you know exactly what you have to offer, but it's tough to translate that. So just be persistent and, and don't shortchange yourself on what you're worth.
2: You know, I think that's such a good point, man. And, and one thing I'll say to to add on to that is the, is man, you've got that warrior mindset. Like I see so many guys get out and they really, you know, they, they connect on the blogs, but they, they always are like, man, it's, it's tough out here and and it is tough, but it's also tough in there, you know, <laughs> like, like, Doing what you did on the special forces side, it, while it's your gift and your skill, you're it, it's it's still extremely tough. So if we could just transfer that warrior mindset over to the civilian side and realize, hey, I, I've got a don't quit, you know, never going to stop attitude, I think that's so huge in, in having success on that transition.
3: Yeah, and I think one thing that gets overlooked a lot, too, is the uh, need to network. Uh, don't be afraid to reach out to your buddies who have gotten out before you or to other people in your line of work and ask them, Hey, do you have any job openings? Um, My first interview that I actually got once I got out of the military was from a company that I had never even heard of, but a friend of mine had recently started working for him. Um, He was a, he was an 18 echo, a commo guy for an SF team. And he had gone to work for a computer company and they were looking for guys without a technical background who were good with people and who could uh, translate stuff in a civilian mindset, you know, not kind of the whole office space thing where he's like, I take the specs and give them to the engineers. I'm a people person type thing. Um, That's kind of what they were looking for. They were looking for someone to be able to take, just be able to speak with clients in a real way. And they found that they had hired a couple SF guys and they had loved them. And so my friend offered my name up to him and sure enough, like I ended up getting a job offer for him and it just didn't turn out to be a right fit. I wasn't really ready, but it was through networking. Don't be afraid to reach out to all your friends and just, you know, don't be, we have so much pride in who we are that we refuse to ask for help. you know, we can, we have this attitude of, we got this, we can do this. This is all on me. I, I don't need help, but the, the military
2: kind of the military kind of builds that into us, though, right? Like,
3: yeah, <laughs> you know no, absolutely. I mean, self-resilience and and self-reliance, and you know, just that never give up mentality translates into who we are as people. But when you get out, it's a different animal. You got to be able to network. You got to be able to reach out to friends and family and say, "Hey, do you have anything for me? Because it'd be awesome if you did." And I'm, uh, you know, here's my outstretched hand. But at the same time, you have so much value that you're not really asking for a favor you're doing them a favor because when you end up getting hired by this company you're going to add so much value to that company that they're going to ever wonder why they never selected you to begin with so you know we, we got to get past that mindset of you know we're begging or we're asking a favor we're not we're doing them a favor by by trying to become part of their their company awesome. and that starts with networking
1: Awesome. Yeah. And you know, I, i hope that anybody listening could really let those words sink in. Um, you know, it's, it's great advice. Tim is doing great work with the veterans project. Uh, check out Chris at ready warrior LLC on his website. He dropped his email. He's on social media as well. Special forces medics. Uh, Chris, I just want to thank you for coming on, man. I really appreciate you taking out the time. I know that you're overseas, um, you know, so it's, it's, I'm sure it's busy over there for you guys. And uh Tim, once again, thank you for uh co-hosting for this week's podcast.
2: Yeah, man. Glad to be on. Chris is over there in Afghanistan. I'm like, NBD. Oh yeah. I'm just in Afghanistan doing yeah, podcasts no, right no, now. No big deal. <laughs> <laughs> you
3: having on. I really appreciate the opportunity to come back and, and talk to you. Right, yeah. Bro. Hey, stay, stay safe over there, brother. Yeah. I appreciate it. I will.
1: Thank you. It's always good to have an 18 Delta on the podcast because they really have a very broad and kind of interesting perspective when it comes to the application of tactical medicine and the importance of spreading that information back to a civilian population. And there are a lot of good organizations out there who do a very good job in producing great equipment so, you know such as tourniquets uh, and and other pieces of equipment that are vital and important to life-saving on the battlefield but all of these things can be applied to civilians anywhere on the planet and you know there are, like I said there are a lot of great organizations that dedicate a lot of time and energy into raising awareness and getting some of this equipment out to the public for very reasonable prices Um you know, it's always good to have Tim Kozak on, you know, what he's doing with the Veterans Project is so unique and interesting. And, um, you know, it's content that you really won't find anywhere but the Veterans Project. So, you know, I'm, I'm humbled and honored that Tim takes out the time of his busy schedule to come on and co-host and, and that sort of thing. So, you know, it's – um. You know, it's been an interesting year and a lot has happened. Uh, you know, like we, we talked earlier, you know, the one year anniversary of Matthew McClintock's passing has just passed us. And, you know, he left behind a wife and a, a young child and, you know, it's uh, the community has come together. The Greenbury community has done a very good job. And then, the American community has come together and really supported it. and it's really cool to see people who don't even know any any of these guys who have been killed in action over the last year but have done a lot of things in the realm of supporting them and attempting, you know, in, in any way that they could to support the family and that sort of thing. So it's really cool to see the power of social media used in a positive way. And uh, it's awesome, you know, and I hope everyone keeps keeps it up and, uh, you know, we keep supporting each other. And then, um, you know, so with that being said, now I'll close out this episode. My website is globalrecon.net. My Instagram account is igrecon. The second account is Black Ops Matter. Another account which I post on is mission underscore critical. That's the account owned by my friend Chantal Chantel Taylor. British Army combat medic. Uh, Chantal has been on the podcast a couple times and she wrote a very good book about her time in Afghanistan uh, called Battle One. So check out the book if you can. It's available anywhere books are sold. Easiest place is probably Amazon. I'm also on LinkedIn to search Global Recon. I'm on Twitter at IG Recon. As always, Leave us a review, subscribe, share, and download these episodes with your family from iTunes or SoundCloud. And uh, we appreciate all the support. We have an interesting month and um, in terms of guests and who we'll have on. And we got some good episodes lined up for you guys. So, you know, hopefully you guys enjoy it. All right. We'll see you guys in a couple of days with another episode. Peace.